You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Today's episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters, including our Commodore class. That's Commodores Kane, Kenway, Hefei, Zuman, the Pirate Nopales, Matthew the Navigator, Bull, Vertigon, Conifalende, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course, our Quartermaster Heather. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Before we get started today, I'd like to address a couple of things. First, a touch of housekeeping. Last time, I neglected to mention one of our Commodores at the opening of the show, the Pirate Nopales, so I'd like to apologize for that and offer them an honorary captaincy for the day, maybe. I really appreciate all of your support, and I do apologize about that. But secondly... About last time, I cut the episode a bit short. I had a much longer episode outlined, and it involved a lengthy segment of quotations. Those quotes were intended to showcase another point of view about the topic around which today's show is centered, a point of view that's different from my own or the other Western historians who I use as sources. But a couple of things happened. First of all, it felt incomplete at the end of last week's episode. I didn't have the time to get the entire story I wanted to in there. And secondly, I got really annoyed while reading one of those quotes, and instead of staying on topic as I had intended to, I just sort of jumped head first right off the rails. The topic here is, well, a bit more on that in a little bit, but it can be a sensitive topic. And I worry that my response to the quotes I read and their authors might come off as less than sensitive. I thought about not including what I recorded for last week's episode, just getting rid of it entirely, but then I realized that's my honest reaction to a scholarly opinion. Rather than dance around that or censor myself, I've chosen to leave it in, in its complete form, in today's episode. My reaction to their opinion, when we finally get around to it, should be taken as just that. A reaction, maybe an overreaction even, but a reaction to some bad history and what I see as poor historical analysis, and maybe even a criticism of the reckless choices that the author made. What it is not is a slam against the author themselves, who I'm sure is a lovely person and an intelligent scholar in other regards. Nor is it a larger commentary on any community or creed. If you'd like my personal views on that sort of thing, they're very simple, and I'll give them at the outset. I believe in the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Follow that, and your business is none of mine, and I wish you all the best. With all that said, and hopefully with all my bases covered, I'm going to jump in and begin with the second half of last week's show before moving on. This is episode 95, Pride Cometh, Part 2. Pride Cometh Before the Fall 
Who else do we know in this story to which that idea applies? Who was puffed up with vain glory, only to have that dashed and taken away? Who thought that they were at the top of the world? Who was, in many ways, at the top of the food chain, only to find themselves at the bottom? Whose story so perfectly mimics that of the fall of Venice that it's almost as though some extraordinarily clever and handsome podcaster came along and made that the theme of an episode? Of course, I'm talking about John Ward, the arch-pirate and most feared captain in the Mediterranean. He returned home to Tunis with his tail between his legs. He lost his great warship, the Rainieri Sodorina, and with her, he'd lost a significant investment in guns and time and labor. All of that, though, was nothing compared to the loss in human lives. Three hundred and fifty sailors died when the Sodorina sank. All of them were Muslim. All of them were native sons of Barbary. However, Ruby and Little John, his other ships, made it safely back to Tunis with crews full of European pirates, and all of them were very safe, very dry, and very much alive. Adrian Tenniswood writes in Pirates of Barbary, quote, Ward faced a bitterly hostile reception when he sailed into Tunis without the Sodorina and without her crew. The friends of the lost men wanted to know how it was that the English admiral had survived when their loved ones hadn't. End quote. I do wonder how that immediate, initial reception went for John Ward. I mean, right after he put in and everyone crowded the docks, what happened? The return of someone like John Ward was always a moment of celebration. Not only did they usually bring in plunder and plenty of money to spread around, but they usually brought friends and family home. They shared happy reunions. Now everyone knew, everyone who lived in Tunis knew that sailors in that line of work lived a dangerous life. Any sailor, even legitimate sailors, might not make it back home due to storm or sickness or a myriad of other causes, and corsairs in particular were more likely to die in the pursuit of their prizes. All of those friends and family members who were there at the dock well, they were aware that bad news might come home with Jack Ward. They were, you might even say, prepared for it. But the Sodorina wasn't there at all. I wonder if they had a moment where they thought, was she lagging behind, or was she on another mission? And I wonder if Jack Ward broke the news there on the dock, or did he rush home to his alabaster palace and her tall, strong walls? Did Ward forbid his men from speaking of anything that had happened out there? at least, you know, until he and the officers had been safely hidden away, or did the news break immediately? Did the people that were there waiting for their loved ones at the docks, did they storm Ward and his men when they realized what had happened? Were they demanding answers of him? Were Ward and the other officers hounded back to the fortress? Maybe, maybe they had their swords drawn. Maybe they were incurring curses and stones and wrath. Well, Tennis Wood continues, quote, for a time, Ward didn't dare walk the streets for fear of the outcries and cursings blown in his ears of wives, fathers, and kindred, for the loss of so many of their friends at one blow, and it was only the continued support of Uthman Day that enabled him to recruit a crew. Even then, no Turk would sail with him. End quote. Holed up in his mansion, unable to walk the streets, and unwilling at the moment to go back out on the sea, this was a desperate time for John Ward. He was at his lowest and his weakest. Oddly, 
despite his desperate fortunes, back in England his legend grew even larger, thanks to the English agent Henry Pepwell. Pepwell spent a lot of his time in Barbary, and he was there on a number of missions, but one of them was to find out as much as he could about Jack Ward and what had happened to the Soderina, and that's when he heard that John Ward was alive. He wrote back to England to tell the Crown and Council all about it. He told them that John Ward, quote, beyond a doubt the greatest scoundrel that ever sailed from England, end quote, had escaped death, somehow. Now, Pepwell and John Ward had a sort of relationship. Pepwell had been behind giving messages to the Crown and Council about John Ward's request for pardon. They knew each other and were, on one level, almost friends. But not quite. You aren't usually friends with someone who you consider to be the greatest scoundrel ever. But the news that he was alive was big news in England. And it was around this time when word of that broke that the writers and pamphleteers in London, and all around Europe really, picked up on Ward's story. This was no longer just a curiosity for the newspaper or something to be discussed in the halls of power. This was a story. In the mind of those writers, Ward was some kind of unnatural creature, someone who was beyond evil and perhaps unable to be killed, perhaps quite literally, in league with Lucifer. Tennyswood continues, quote, Europe still regarded Ward as a sinister puppet master, directing a vast pirate fleet from his stronghold in Tunis, end quote. And of that stronghold, the pamphlet News from the Sea writes, quote, Uthmande gave him a ruined castle in the city, and on the site he built a mansion, a stately house far more fit for a prince than a pirate, end quote. That's not exactly how it went. The palace was already in fine repair. John Ward just inhabited it. It was that same treasury fortress that he had been living in for some years now, but they wanted to build Ward up in these stories. See, the image they portrayed about John Ward was, well, first of all, it was in stark contrast to the scared and broken old man that was hiding in that palace in Tunis. But in their minds, in the minds of the writers and the people living in Europe, every pirate that was operating in the Mediterranean was, well, they were described as a follower of John Ward, from Francis Verney, who actually was, to Zyman Danziker, who was at best an associate, to pirates that were operating out of Egypt or Greece or Morocco, people who had likely never met John Ward, maybe never even heard of him. But in reality, John Ward was hemorrhaging followers at a truly alarming rate. Greg Bach writes of that time, quote, Ward had lost the trust of his men, and they would not abide his command without muttering and mutiny. Among Christian seamen it was said that Ward favored Muslims, while Muslims held that Ward was using them as swabs and cannon fodder. Nonetheless, the fact remains that Ward was unwilling or unable to put to sea following his disastrous outing on the Soderina. Instead, Ward spent his days ashore, isolated in his mansion. End quote. See, the storytellers were building this image of Ward up to be this caricature of an evil pirate, but the reality was well, kind of depressing. And it's at this point, looking at the reality of the story, that some modern, and not quite modern, but after the fact, historians choose to bring up the question of John Ward's pardon. Now, we talked at length about his pardon already, but I mentioned that there was another theory, or another idea. But really the reality is that some 
authors, rather than historians, choose to do this. And, dramatically, this makes a lot of sense. Of course Ward would seek pardon from King James when he was at his lowest and weakest. It doesn't make sense when you're crafting a narrative for the arch-pirate to seek pardon when he was at the height of his power, when he had a warship and a fleet and hundreds of loyal men. Why would he do that? So, many of these writers wait to tell that part of the story until Ward is weak, and it makes sense on a dramatic level. No, I'm not saying they misrepresent the facts necessarily, at least the modern writers don't, but they do choose to talk about the pardon after they talk about the loss of Rainiera y Soderina, and that can be a bit misleading. It's almost certain that John Ward did bring up the question of the pardon again, probably to Henry Pepwell. But England, this time, was having none of it. They'd narrowly averted a war with Venice, and without the Rainieri Soderina, John Ward was much less of a threat. Both of those were good reasons to ignore John Ward's request, but that money was still a potential, a possibility. But there was another reason, a reason above all others, that England refused to even hear of a pardon from John Ward, a reason that outweighed even their greed. John Ward had converted to Islam. When I said that many of those writers believed that John Ward was quite literally in a pact with Satan, they believed that this conversion to Islam was evidence of such a pact. The assumptions and the denunciations that followed the news were fast and fierce. The reason that that flood of writers and pamphleteers and poets all decided to write about John Ward was this. It was what they considered his singular betrayal. And they really saw it as a betrayal. I mean, yeah, he'd already jumped ship and turned pirate and chosen the outlaw's path, but there was that little corner in every English person's mind that sort of admired that sort of audacity. The sins of John Ward were obviously many, but the English have this tradition of folk tales like those about Robin Hood, which Ward actively embraced. The national heroes of England weren't men like the King or men like Cecil. They were scoundrels who made good, men like Sir Francis Drake and Thomas Cavendish. And on the other hand, yeah, the better angels of the mythological nature of England strove for the chivalric ideals of King Arthur, but when the ruler was unjust, take Prince John from the Robin Hood tale, or hypothetically say that the king was a foreign king who was a suspected Catholic sympathizer and the son of a French Catholic woman who good Queen Bess herself had imprisoned more than once and who had single-handedly destroyed the entire privateering industry say that hypothetical king was on the throne, the English might see something a bit almost patriotic about, you know, going rogue, going pirate. And in America, this is something I think we all understand, this ideal of the noble outlaw, of the reluctant rebel. It's a trope in most of our greatest stories, all the best cowboy stories and, you know, pirate stories. Well, they... They didn't come down to the U.S. with our revolution. We inherited that from the English and built upon it. So that little bit of sympathy remained in the English mind for John Ward until it came out that he had converted. 
There was nothing remotely patriotic about abandoning the Anglican faith and the very last vestige of what made him English in the first place. And what's more, reports were coming in that John Ward had abandoned his own name. He was calling himself Yusuf Rais, and he was holding court over his pirate empire from his alabaster palace. And in these tales told in England, John Ward had begun to exhibit all the clichés of both Islam and North Africa, as told in Europe at the time. He had harems filled with scantily clad concubines, both men and women, and scandalously young, there were silks and opium and sumptuous food everywhere. The bacchanals thrown by Ward and his associates had become things of legend. In the minds of the English, at least, he had a team of chefs, over a dozen of them, including two, to prepare his meat, not to mention all of the undercooks working for those chefs. And they would prepare feasts the likes of which no one in England had ever seen. Ward himself had two personal food tasters, just in case one was tempted to sacrifice his own life to kill the pirate. Mind-altering substances that were known to be prolific in Barbary flowed freely at these bacchanals, and armies of young men and women attended to the pirates to see to their every need. The writers who were inventing these tales hinted at everything, but they always demurred and claimed that everything that happened was too scandalous for any good Christian to put to paper. So you can see why the play about John Ward, a Christian-turned-Turk, was such a hit. It was a best-seller, and there were ample opportunities when it was put on stage for a good bit of violence and sex and all manner of depravity, so they always put on a good show. But don't forget that there was a moral here that all of that stuff was of the devil, so no one had to feel guilty to go see a production of the play. But there's one piece of evidence that might suggest that there's some truth in these rumors. I say might, it's not proof, but... Well, there was a merchant named John King that arrived in Barbary later that year with a hold full of cheap English ale. He traded a ton of that ale, and when I say ton here, I mean T-U-N. That's an old English unit of liquid by volume, rather than weight. It's equal to about... 240 to 250 gallons. Now, John King traded a ton of cheap ale for an equal amount of good and very expensive Alicante wine. The man on the other end of that trade was John Ward. Now, this was given as proof of John Ward's debaucherous ways, and, you know, 250 gallons of ale does seem to suggest that, but how about this? He had already taken this ship full of wine. He had plenty of it, but he and his men, well, they wanted to go home. At least we know John Ward and some of his captains did. Maybe they were missing England a little bit, and maybe that cheap English ale, well, maybe the profit they could have made on selling that wine elsewhere was worth the loss to have a taste of home. That debaucherous image of Ward is counter to the facts that we have, which are slim. As evidence of the English attitude towards this pirate Yusuf Rais, formerly known as John Ward, you can take the poem written by Samuel Rowlands. He says, quote, Thou wicked lump of only sin and shame, denouncing Christian faith and Christian name, a villain worse than he that Christ betrayed, 
and he's talking about Judas Iscariot here. The phrasing is a bit confusing, but he goes on, quote, Receive this warning from thy native land. God's fearful judgments, villain, are at hand. Devils attend. Hellfire is prepared. Perpetual flames is reprobate's reward. End quote. I'm curious as to whether prepared would have been pronounced prepared or whether reward would have been pronounced reward. But when the author writes reward at the end of that, it's written R-E-Ward with a capital W. Now, reward was originally a compound word, and R-E-Ward is the traditional spelling, so it kind of fits here, but even by 1600, it was an archaic spelling. And when you add in the capitalization of the W, well, it makes it a pretty clear, clever little indictment of John Ward. So that was the prevailing attitude there in England. John Ward had a future of eternal damnation to look forward to, but that does raise the question of, well, why did Ward convert in the first place? And we're going to look at that, but before we do... I'd like to look at John Ward's conversion to Islam from the other side, from the side of Muslim commentators on Yusuf Rais. I'd like to, but I had trouble with this. I'm certain that there are probably a ton of interesting takes on John Ward from the point of view of Islamic scholars out there, both in the past and in the modern day, but I couldn't find any of those. If they exist, they're probably either hidden in books I don't know about, or in other languages. I do have two sources, though, that are distinctly from the point of view of Islamic scholars. However, one of those sources is reputable, and the other is not. Both of them, though, are Western academics who were born into a more traditional Judeo-Christian society that then converted to Islam. So we have to take that into account. Now, one of them is a writer who I've mentioned on the show before that I find to be a reprehensible human being and his views are not worth discussing, so let's throw that out the window. But the other is a respected English academic. He was born Timothy Winter, but he took the name Abdal Hakim Murad, and he's something of a leader in the English Muslim community. I don't know terribly much about him, but his Wikipedia page tells me that he had a fantastic education, both in England and in the Middle East, in Saudi Arabia, Egypt, and Yemen. And now he's a professor in England, focusing on Islamic studies. But that gives him a unique perspective, I think. Writing about an English pirate who converted to Islam, well, there's very few other people who would have the same point of view about that. But it's far from impartial. He's, at best, a flawed source, so I hesitate to use it, but I'll let his own words speak for themselves. He published a paper in 2003 about John Ward the Pirate and wrote, quote, For centuries, historians have debated the significance of one of the most stirring episodes in the history of Britain's Muslim minority. Men such as Captain John Ward of Kent astounded their compatriots by proudly adopting Islam to fight the Inquisition and the expansionist powers of Europe. Contemporaries called such men corsairs. They themselves considered themselves mujahideen. Some were among the most pious Muslims this country has yet produced. The adventurer John Smith, later Disneyfied thanks to his romance with Princess Pocahontas, was one English traveler who saw these Muslims firsthand. 
He wrote a book, The True Travels and Adventures, to describe the European Muslims who were fighting for the Crescent against the Cross. Leading the list were men of Holland and England who, disgusted by religious wars in their own countries and unpersuaded by trinities and vicarious atonements, took the turbant of the Turk. End quote. I do question how the author knows what these men considered themselves, Mujahideen or otherwise, considering very few of them could write, and neither John Ward nor Zyman Danziker left written records behind. The only things we have at best are second-hand accounts. Now perhaps he has accounts in Turkish or Arabic that I don't. I don't know that to be the case, though. But then, this particular scholar goes on to spout a whole bunch of nonsense. He calls, first of all, Captain Danziker one of the Mujahideen in question, and that, as we will shortly see, is not the case at all. But then he says, quote, Until the arrival of these European adventurers, the coastal ports of North Africa had been unused to war. End quote. And when he's talking about those European adventurers, he's clearly talking about John Ward and Zyman Danziker. I'll read that again. Until the arrival of these European adventurers, Ward and Danziker, the coastal ports of North Africa had been unused to war. And I just... Okay. How far back do you want to go here? Do you want to go to Rome? How about the fact that Scipio Africanus gained his name due to a war in North Africa, which is one of the most important conflicts in all of world history? But sure, that's a long time ago, so let's look a bit later. How about the Vandal invasions? Was that war enough for you? How about the violent conquest of those lands and those port cities by the Umayyad and Abbasid Caliphates? How about the horrific way that they both put down Berber rebellions in those cities? What about the Ottoman Empire and their conquest of North Africa? And then, how about the century of war between the Corsairs and all of Catholic Europe? I just... My mind is boggled. I can't believe someone with those kinds of qualifications and that level of education would say something so stupid. I want to blame this on apologism. I want to say that the author is trying to divert any blame that might be leveled toward any Muslim corsairs on their Western counterparts. That would be false. That would be misleading. That would be disingenuous and hypocritical. But at least it's a motivation that I can wrap my mind around. I can understand why somebody would do that. But two things. First, if Abdal Hakim Murad wanted to blame all of the warfare that came to the Barbary Coast, wanted to say that it was all brought down upon the, you know, poor, oppressed, downtrodden, Ottoman-appointed overlords of those cities... Even if the author wanted to blame all that on the vile and detestable European Catholics, Charles V is right there. The Holy Roman Emperor himself, and he goes on and on about how bad the Inquisition was, and you know, they were, but this guy was the head of the Inquisition, literally the leader of it, and he personally invaded Barbary twice. So he could stick to that narrative without saying that these pirates brought war to North Africa. And then second, if there were a Muslim apologist that wanted to paint men like Hazir Barbarossa in a flattering light, I could understand that. Hazir Barbarossa was, in many ways, kind of a founding father to Barbary, and he was an impeccably talented seafarer and, in many ways, a talented governor. So if you want to paint him as an admiral and a pasha rather than a pirate, 
I can understand that the English for a long time did the same thing with Henry Morgan, but his entire career, and his brother's career, and the people that came before him, well, it was built on war. Barbarossa led armies. He was the military governor of Algiers. So how can you say that these cities were unused to war when he personally captured them himself twice? I just... I just can't. That's just so unbelievably dumb. Now, I should say this author is an Islamic scholar, but not a historian. But come on, that's just such obvious crap. I don't see that as an excuse. It just exhibits a fundamental misunderstanding of the time and of the players, and all I can see is just a blatant attempt for the most biased kind of historical revisionism. You know what? I'm not going to bother with that other source at all. I was going to use an example from it, but it's just the same kind of utter drivel that calls Ward a brave and honorable jihadist for the crescent against the tyrannical forces of Christian Europe, and it's frankly the same kind of poor, biased excuse for history that was taking place in Europe in the 1600s. Any modern historian with a lick of shame, and I presume any of the Islamic scholars to which I do not have access, but any of them would absolutely discuss all of the horrible atrocities that Europe was willing to dish out on other people. The Inquisition was terrible, the religious wars were terrible, but you also have to talk honestly about the other side of that equation. And this, you know, I know it's all my fault, I couldn't find better sources, and that's my job. I wanted to find a good Muslim perspective on John Ward, but I failed to. If anybody out there can point me in the right direction, please do, and I will rectify this in the future, but, well, for now, that's what I've got. And that was essentially where last week's episode ended. So, yeah, I clearly wasn't very fond of that quote, and as it happens, I'm still not. But I've calmed down a bit, so I'd like to return to that essay with a clearer head. In that essay, entitled Ward the Pirate, Sheikh Abdal Hassan Murad, and I should have given him his proper title earlier, he writes, quote, Most Moors knew little of the sea, and still less of the infernal arts of gunpowder, but they welcomed Muslims from the Mediterranean lands and from the seafaring nations of the north. End quote. Okay, so I'm going to stay calm this time. Let's unpack that a bit. The Moors, a people who lived in North Africa primarily, with hundreds and hundreds of miles of Mediterranean coastline, according to this author, knew little of the sea. If we look at that from a certain point of view, that is possibly factually accurate to a point. The word more, or Moorish, is somewhat fluid in definition here, so if we take it to mean perhaps the Berber people, the Berber people specifically, then, well, they were never really known as a seafaring people. You know, they fished, absolutely, but they weren't much for seaborne trade and certainly not for naval warfare. But then, when we look at the larger and more commonly accepted definition of the word more, what we find is an archaic term for the Muslim inhabitants of Spain and North Africa during the Middle Ages. That includes the emirates and caliphates set up by the Umayyad and Abbasid conquerors, as well as the Ottomans. That includes the emirate and later the caliphate of Cordoba. They were 
especially the Caliphate of Cordoba and later on the Ottomans, they were among the most skilled, experienced, and prolific sea traders in the history of the classical world, up there with Carthage and Rome and even China, seriously. So, if we look at the more commonly accepted definition, that quote is also factually inaccurate. But as for the gunpowder bit, saying that the Moors knew less of the infernal arts of gunpowder, well, let's unpack that as well. Gunpowder originally came to China, and before moving on to Europe, significantly before moving on to Europe, it traveled through the Middle East. Arabia and Turkey and Persia all certainly had access to gunpowder, and the Janissary warriors in the Ottoman Empire were a skilled and elite class of warriors that used cannon and firearms almost exclusively. But those trading routes would have traveled through Constantinople to get to Europe, so the author could almost be forgiven for saying that the Moors in North Africa would have known little of the infernal arts of gunpowder, except that Hayreddin Barbarossa brought gunpowder to the Barbary coast. He built gunpowder manufactories in Algiers, and later they were set up in Tunis and Tripoli as well, and they were in almost constant use between the time he started them and our story today in the early 1600s. So I don't know why Sheikh Abdal Hakim would say something like that. Were he not a respected proponent of Islam, I would think that all of that sounds kind of like the ramblings of a deeply racist Englishman. But that doesn't appear to be the case. He's just, you know, poorly informed. As I said, I'm staying calm here. When speaking about the conversion of Christian Europeans to Islam as Mujahideen, the author continues, and this is a long one, quote, English Muslims were at the forefront of this movement ranging the seas to capture first Spanish and then any Christian ship, enslaving the crew and selling the cargo as spoils of war. To this day there is a building in the Moroccan town of Salih known as the Englishman's Mosque. Most of these individuals took the secret of their lives with them to the grave. And I'd like to pause right here. He's talking about Muslims who were converted from Christianity that became butchers or bakers or herders or anything more mundane than pirates. But he goes on, quote, Thanks to the Spanish Inquisition, however, historians have access to information about a good number of them. One Inquisition court in the year 1610 investigated no fewer than 39 Britons. Twelve of them were from the ports of the West Country. Ten were Londoners, six were from Plymouth, and others originated in Middlesbrough, Lyme, and the Channel Islands. In 1631, the Inquisition in the Spanish city of Murcia tried one Alexander Harris, who, as Rais Murad, had become a prominent Muslim seafarer. He was convicted, forced to convert back to Catholicism, and sentenced to seven years as a galley slave. Another unfortunate Englishman was Francis Barnes, who admitted to the Inquisitors that he had faithfully prayed and fasted, quote, in the Mahometan manner, end quote, while working as a ship's pilot at Tunis, where he was captured by Spanish raiders. In 1626, Robin Locar of Plymouth, also known as Ibrahim, was captured by Tuscan galleys and convicted of practicing Islam. Captain Jonas of Dartmouth, known as Mami al-Inglazi, was yet another victim of these dreaded Spanish raiders. End quote. 
We're finally getting around to the point here. That's why I wanted to continue on with this essay by Sheikh Abdal Hakim. That's a large part of why I wanted to get to this essay in the first place. In one part, to discuss John Ward, but then to move on with it. I mean, look at that list of converts, Christian, English converts, to Islam. They were all pirates, and that list is far from complete. There were perhaps hundreds or even thousands of northern European sailors that would sail down to Barbary, they would turn pirate, and they would convert to Islam. Now, we're going to talk a lot more about most of them next time, when we talk about that trend in what was called the Renegados. For now, we need to return to John Ward. John Ward was now a Muslim named Yusuf Rais, and everyone hated him. Europe hated him, the Muslims there in Barbary hated him, everyone did. But why did he convert in the first place? Ward was... Well, he claimed to be a devout Christian, although he never showed that through his actions. But what led him to Islam? Sheikh Abdal Hakim gives one explanation, quote, Life in Tunis, as in the Muslim world generally, was more refined and comfortable than its equivalent in Europe, and despite several offers, Ward showed no sign of yearning for his home shores, end quote. The second part of that was obvious nonsense. We know that Ward did indeed yearn for his home shores, or at least he worked quite hard to make it look like he wanted that pardon that would allow him to return home. But that first part sort of isn't nonsense. Generally, life in Barbary and much of the Muslim world was a lot more comfortable, and in some ways more refined than life in Northern Europe. Now, the author seems to be comparing John Ward's life in Barbary to his life in England. He says that life is more comfortable than its equivalent in Europe. But John Ward's life in Barbary was in no way equivalent to his life in England. Ward was on almost the lowest rung of society that was available in England, and when he came to Tunis, he rose to the top very quickly. Obviously, life was going to be more refined and more comfortable when you're born a fisherman and suddenly you find yourself at the head of a palace. These are different circumstances, so there's an obvious problem there. But even when it was somewhat equivalent, life in Barbary was still more comfortable than it was in England. The climate, obviously, is going to be a lot better. The food, probably a lot better. And then there were the rising personal circumstances, not just the drastic personal circumstances of someone like Ward, but for all of the converts. Now, the two Muslim writers I have access to credit that comfort to the clearly superior culture of the Islamic world. They will also use that as the explanation for why so many of these Englishmen and Dutchmen all turned Turk and became what these authors consider to be loyal and pious Mujahideen. I think there's a lot more to be said for the clearly improved circumstances of these Europeans. Most of them were happy in their lives as privateers, or at least moderately content. They were at least somewhat in control of their own lives and their own fortunes. Was that the case for every person in Barbary? For the butchers and the herders and the farmers and the beggars? Maybe not, but put a pin in that. We'll talk about that next time when we're talking about the other pirates. When that right to be a privateer was taken away by the king and all of those privateers were relegated back to their, 
either naval or fishermen's lives, many of them chose to leave England and seek better fortunes elsewhere, and they found that in Barbary. When the Irish began migrating in large numbers to the United States, or when the Italians did the same thing, or the Chinese did the same thing, or a large number of Jewish people did the same thing, or a lot of Vietnamese people have done it now, whenever any large group of people from a certain ethnic or national background begin to move to a certain location around the same time, it's largely because they find that they can improve their circumstances there. This isn't controversial, this is just how it works. And that's why so many of the pirates, so many of these English and Dutch former privateers, moved to Barbary. It gave them back control over their lives and their fortunes. But does that explain John Ward's conversion? I don't think it does. It explains his migration, but maybe it was because he found such a warm welcome in Islamic lands. Maybe he did find, while he was living in Barbary, a genuine and legitimate love of Islam. Maybe he just attended services and, you know, saw the light. Maybe he saw that people in the Islamic world lived lives that were more fulfilled than people in his home country. And maybe he decided at that moment that Islam was superior. Any of that could be true. But we don't have John Ward's thoughts on the matter. And... Life in Barbary was, at least for him, significantly better than life in England. And I don't think that that's an argument that can be entirely discounted, but it also can't really be quantified or proven. So instead, I think we should stick with reputable sources that look at the evidence we do have. Around the time of his conversion, after returning to Tunis, John Ward had a lot of problems piling up on his plate, his one big asset, though, was his close friendship with the Dey of Tunis, Uthman Dey. But Uthman Dey died shortly after John Ward returned. And the incoming Dey, the man who succeeded him, didn't hold Ward in the same sort of friendship. In fact, they had an immediately adversarial relationship. See, the fortune that John Ward brought into Tunis, to Uthman Dey, became the personal property of Uthman Dey, and that fortune was passed down to his children, who weren't in any positions of any particular power. Now, Ward's position in the treasury of Tunis put him in charge of his own fortune and that of Uthman Dey's, now the Dey's children. The treasury of Tunis itself and the Janissary garrison's treasury was the prerogative of a different treasurer, the actual treasurer of Tunis. But that's still a bit too close for comfort for someone like the incoming day. So John Ward wasn't exactly forced out, but the new day made it very clear that he was not welcome in that position of, you know, de facto vice-treasurer any longer. When John Ward bought that ton of English ale, he didn't do so in Tunis. He did so over in Algiers. The Pasha of Algiers, Redouan Pasha, was the same man who, only about three or four years earlier, had imprisoned at least a dozen of Ward's compatriots and chased them out of Algiers with the threat of hanging, or execution at least, hanging over their head. He despised the English, and there's nothing to suggest that those feelings or his particular anger toward Ward had abated at all. Except for John Ward's conversion. 
Both Greg Bach and Adrian Tenniswood, who I've used quite a bit on these last few weeks, well, they see John Ward's conversion as a decision that he felt pushed into, and I personally agree with them here. I think that this conversion was an attempt to placate the incoming day of Tunis, to keep his position in the treasury, but that attempt initially failed. So Ward set out to sea again. But instead of the storm of piracy that the English would have expected, John Ward ran to his old compatriot, Zyman Danziker. Now, Zyman Danziker was not Muslim, but he was Dutch, and that made him better than the English in the eyes of the Pasha, and he had actually grown quite close to Redouan Pasha. Danziker's friendship with the Pasha, I think combined with Ward's embrace of Islam here, seems to have placated Redouan, and probably is what convinced him to accept John Ward into the city. John Ward stayed in Algiers for a little while, or not necessarily in Algiers, but operated out of Algiers. He went back to sea, back on the account. These weren't the grand voyages of his past, though. These were smaller missions, of which he was no longer in ultimate command. He was just another captain on most of them. The English, in 1600 at least, would of course tell you that this was nonsense. He was clearly pulling the strings on all of these pirates, but that wasn't the case. John Ward sailed out alongside, but not at the head of, other pirates like Danziker and Richard Bishop and Francis Verney, and a man named Mehmet Raiz, also known as George Blake. More on all that next time. However, going back to Ward, the next record we have of his whereabouts that can be verified suggests kind of strongly that his conversion to Islam may have been a bit less than legitimate. In mid-1609, John Ward appeared, out of the blue, off the coast of England. He was trying, you know, not to blockade a harbor or bombard a fortress, he was trying to smuggle himself back home. He was spotted and chased off, but he tried again, and he was rebuffed, and he tried again. That suggests to me, and to most of the historians who have written about Ward, that he was trying to get away from Barbary. He, well, he might have had more nefarious designs here, and we'll talk about all of that next week when we talk about the other pirates. But for now, if we are trying to decipher the legitimacy or the meaning of John Ward's conversion, I'll leave you with two quotes. The first is from Greg Bach. He writes, quote, Reviewing Ward's story, it is difficult not to perceive his conversion as opportunistic, in light of his reported attempts to return to Christendom, conversion seems to have been a last resort. Nonetheless, we know that Ward took religion seriously. As he finally found acceptance and respect among the Muslims of Tunis, did Yusuf Rais also find spiritual peace? We cannot know. End quote. And since I spent so much of today's episode speaking poorly of Sheikh Abdal Hakim Murad, I would like to leave you with one final quote that I'm actually quite fond of from that essay. He writes, quote, Later generations of English Muslims, both at home and in North Africa, admired Ward as a superb mariner, fearless in battle, and a doughty warrior for the Crescent, in the free lands of the South, where church, mosque, and synagogue coexisted for centuries, and where humble birth was no barrier to glory. End quote. 
John Ward will be sailing alongside the pirates we talk about next time, at least for part of the story. However, except for his sudden, unexpected, and frankly terrifying appearance off the coast of England, John Ward really wasn't the major player in any of those stories. After the Soderina sank, and after all of the hubbub around his conversion died down, John Ward's life grew significantly more quiet. After those voyages alongside those other pirates, John Ward did return to Tunis. Uthmande's successor had died, and a new man had come to be raised to the position of Day, who was less inclined to hate John Ward. John Ward didn't necessarily have the position of power he had once held in Tunis, but he did still own his palace, the alabaster palace that had been handed down to him by the Day. The palace more fit for a prince than a pirate. A Scottish traveler and travel writer whose life is, frankly, the sort of exciting age of exploration life that I could only dream about, traveled to Barbary in 1615. I do intend to talk more about Lithgow's career at a later date, but in 1615, in the city of Tunis, he met an old man living in a slightly ramshackle alabaster palace, named John Ward. Of course, he knew of the pirate, but John Ward wasn't what he expected. He had gathered a coterie of influential Tunisians around him. None of them were natives of the Barbary Coast, but from Corsica, Sicily, Sardinia, England, the Netherlands, France, Spain, and Venice. All of them up-and-coming pirates or officials in the city government of Tunis that wanted to bask in the last vestiges of light from John Ward's glory. He still had the ability to set a fine table and tell a hell of a story, but he was no longer the pirate that he had been. He had grown old and tired, and while John Ward still did enjoy a taste for the finer things, according to William Lithgow, his favorite pastime included sitting down in front of a warm oven outside his house alongside his friends, telling stories, and watching those ovens incubate hundreds of hen's eggs and waiting for them to hatch. William Lithgow was particularly enamored with these incubators. He said they were, quote, answerable to the natural warmness of the hen's belly, upon which moderation, within twenty or thirty days, they come to natural perfection. John Ward's life was one of tumult. He was born at the bottom of English civilization. He saw religious conflict in England nearly tear his country apart. He did see good Queen Bess and William Shakespeare rise to prominence, but then he left all that behind to sail for Barbary and become, for a time, perhaps the most famous criminal in the world. John Ward was not a good person. John Ward created almost unimaginable suffering for a countless number of human lives, but there's something oddly touching about that image, about one of the most feared men who has ever lived, for good reason, sitting in front of an incubator, watching the hen's eggs hatch. John Ward would live in that fashion for another ten or fifteen years, until sometime in his mid-seventies the grave finally caught up with him. And he did, in fact, have what he stated as his wish. He was buried in the sea. 
Next time we're going to talk about the other pirates on the Barbary Coast. Zyman Danziker and Francis Varney you both know a bit about, but it's time to continue and to conclude their stories, as well as talk about a few other major players who would rise to prominence in that last major voyage of John Ward. I'd like to thank everyone for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show, all of our patrons on Patreon, everybody who has left us a rating or review, everybody who has suggested this show. Without all of you, I wouldn't be able to do this. Thank you. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you've yet to check them out, I certainly suggest you do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com, or you can get in touch with us on Twitter, SoundCloud, or YouTube. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening. Tonight